Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Eldritch Grimoire. Having moved through the preface and the introduction in the first two episodes, today's podcast constitutes the first actual chapter in this work. If you are new here, and the chances are extremely high that you are, you may find certain terms confusing or unfamiliar. While I aim to be as clear as possible, I strongly encourage you to check out the preface and introduction for clarification if needed. The title of this chapter, Jedi and Sith Heroism, reflects its two major themes. Its overarching aim is to apply the mythological framework that we defined and assembled in the preface and introduction to explore these primary spiritual orders in Star Wars from a novel perspective. Akin to any mythology, the major themes and topics in Star Wars are manifestations of elementary ideas, of archetypes in the collective unconscious, something that George Lucas directly intended. Like any fantasy, Star Wars occurs outside of history. This renders it what Joseph Campbell calls a mythogenetic zone, a poetic space where myths are created and lived because it exists beyond our understanding, a realm of dreams where elementary ideas emerge from the dreamless deep and the absolute to be manifested as the ethnic ideas that shape our spiritual and cultural practices. Indeed, Lucas designed, wrote, and shot all of his Star Wars films as visual movements with music that can be understood without words. It is this aspect of cinema that separates it from perhaps any other previous narrative medium. That is, the ability to instill awe without words through moving pictures and music, while fulfilling the mystical and pedagogical functions inherent to any true mythology. Star Wars under Lucas, and certainly under Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni, therefore constitutes Joseph Campbell's notion of creative mythology. As defined in the preface, in contrast to anachronistic religions built on dead dogmas, a creative mythology, in this case Star Wars, intelligently integrates the elementary norms of myth with spiritual traditions to stimulate the creative imagination, enabling its observer to become a more complete, better functioning individual, and to explore and create new horizons, new mythogenetic zones. Other cinematic incarnations of creative mythology followed the release of the first Star Wars in 1977, many of which we will explore in future chapters, but very few, perhaps even none, preceded it. The most salient question to open this chapter, then, is, what is the Force? According to Lucas, the Force represents the common denominator of all religions, that is, the Absolute, Brahman, or the Tao. Moreover, Akin to these ancient concepts of the divine, the Force has two sides. It is not a malevolent or benevolent thing. Thus, the Force comprises light and dark, dharma and adharma, order and chaos, growth and decline, life and death. The light side and dark side are at once eternal and inseparable, and their interaction creates structures and maintains the universe. Akin to similar conceptions of the absolute, the light and the dark sides are neither good nor evil, they simply are. Also similar to the concept of Brahman, the Force functions across both transcendental and material levels. On the transcendental level, the cosmic force at once gives rise to, surrounds, and constitutes all things. It is absolute consciousness, the unity to which all energy and consciousness will eventually return. On the physical or material level, the cosmic force is manifested as the living force, which is constantly generated by all living beings. The living force mirrors the concept of Atman, which we can roughly describe as individual consciousness, 
the energy, the self, that animates our disparate selves into a living, conscious being. As discussed in the introduction, modern physics is increasingly demonstrating that all matter is a temporary state of the collective energy that pervades the entire universe, a kind of universal consciousness. For millennia, Indian and other pre- and non-Christian traditions have been stating as much in their mythologies, opening paths for individual consciousness to approach this absolute, this Brahman, this cosmic force. In any case, at the most basic cellular level that we are aware of, mitochondria, organelles within our cells, are the engines of procreation. Their energy alone enables cell division, growth, and evolution. They manufacture the eternal return within us trillions of times on a daily basis, while we remain blissfully unaware of this. Hence, other than being a long time ago and far, far away, the essential difference between Star Wars and our reality is that George Lucas transformed our mitochondria into the much maligned midichlorians. Specifically, midichlorians not only fulfill the functions of mitochondria, but also enable the being they are embodied in to manipulate the living force, the energy that all bodies generate, to alter physical reality. Furthermore, while all living beings have midichlorians and therefore some level of force manipulation, some beings have incredibly high midichlorian levels. If they are sentient, we are typically introduced to them as Jedi or Sith in the Star Wars galaxy. The basic division between the Jedi and the Sith that Lucas created, even in his earliest drafts of the first Star Wars film, is their primary drive, selflessness versus selfishness. The former reflects the ultimate goal of most Eastern spiritualities, to recognize and move beyond the illusion of duality between your Atman, your individual consciousness, that is, yourself, and Brahman, universal consciousness, the cosmic self. As discussed in the introduction, no external authority or religion is needed for this, merely an initial shift in your psychological orientation followed by spiritual practice. In India, this practice is called yoga, the linking of the self to itself. In Star Wars, this constitutes the basis for the founding of the Jedi Order, practicing absolute selflessness, surrendering to the living force to become one with the cosmic force. Such surrender and selflessness ensure that the Jedi manipulate the force only in service to others for the benefit of all life, preserving the galaxy and maintaining the natural order, the natural balance of the light and dark sides of the Force. Hence, Jedi must avoid, or at worst overcome, attachments to others and things at all costs. Such attachments imply selfishness, which obviously inhibits surrendering fully to the Force. All of this is distilled in the Jedi Code. There is no emotion, there is peace. There is no ignorance, there is knowledge. There is no passion, there is serenity. There is no chaos, there is harmony. There is no death, there is the force. Jedi Dharma is thus universal harmony. That is, the Jedi do not seek to eliminate the dark side, but to ensure that the perpetual dance between dark and light that manifests and structures the universe is not influenced by forceful individuals. Hence, the quintessential Jedi resembles the Eastern hero in our mythologies. That is, they consider the Force a representation of the Absolute that they seek to recognize and surrender to, not a process they should change. 
even though they have the power to do so as forceful beings, to preserve the Dharma, the will of the Force, the natural order. The Jedi aim to be world-affirming, or perhaps better, Force-affirming heroes, who eliminate their ego through wise disengagement from attachments and material desires on an inward journey that culminates in the joining of their living force, their Atman, with the cosmic force. This is why it is imperative for the Jedi to acquire forceful individuals when they are too young to have formed any attachments that they will remember. This is particularly the case for such individuals who are born in oppressive circumstances, as the temptation to wield the force in righteous physical retribution, rather than surrender to it in the pursuit of cosmic peace and serenity, is often too great for such beings. However, this does not entail that the Jedi are pacifists. Rather, the Jedi uphold ahimsa, the proper, selfless application of violence according to duty and caste, to the will of the Force, in their roles as galactic peacekeepers. This is what Yoda means when he declares, A Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and defense, never for attack. Adopting ahimsa also implies non-interference with societal and political structures. Before their corruption, this had once rendered the Jedi optimal mediators of interplanetary conflict and entailed their tacit acceptance of the existence of slavery and other despicable practices, so long as they were traditions and not external impositions. This is also why the Jedi are corrupted by choosing to side with the Republic during the Clone Wars. By confusing the preservation of the Republic with the will of the Force, the Jedi unwittingly enabled Darth Sidious to fully enshroud the galaxy in the dark side and form the Empire. In this context, the Jedi actually had two options in line with their creed. Total non-engagement or the overthrow of the Republic. Non-engagement obviously aligns with the Jedi Code. Overthrowing the Republic seems not to. However, if the Jedi Council had actually acted as neutral peacekeepers and assessed the complaints of the Separatists, they might have concluded that the Separatists were in fact being oppressed by the Republic. In that case, it would have been their duty, according to their creed, to eliminate that oppression, one way or another. In any case, the prequel trilogy highlights how the Jedi paradoxically teach wise disengagement and nonviolence, but must inevitably intervene in political struggles and exert unmatchable violence, so long as they comprise an institution that structures the Republic rather than the non-political spiritual order of warrior monks they envision themselves as. This is why, in current Star Wars canon, Qui-Gon Jinn, an ascetic and mystic with no interest in the political position of the Jedi Order, is the first Jedi to ever hear the cosmic force after extensive meditation and practice. Following his death, he mentors Yoda and Obi-Wan in this Jedi Yoga, enabling them to maintain their Atman, their living force or individual consciousness, upon becoming one with the cosmic force after their own deaths. Notably, both Yoda and Obi-Wan only achieved this feat in exile, long after the Jedi Order and the Republic are no more. The Sith, of course, have a diametrically opposite approach to the interaction of the self and the Force. Give yourself to the dark side. As to their views and goals, the code of the Sith is clear. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. The Force shall free me. 
As this code suggests, in contrast to the Jedi's force-affirming and thus Eastern perspective, wielding the dark side of the Force represents the Western ego's pursuit of excellence without any ethical responsibility. In fact, the dark side provides forceful beings with so much power that its prolonged use entails that their only moral responsibility becomes continually increasing their own power. That is, the Sith Code implies that since peace is a lie, conflict is the only truth, reflecting the view that the light and dark sides of the Force are engaged in an eternal and chaotic struggle for dominance. From this perspective, the nature of cosmic dharma, of the will of the Force, is unending war for dominance. Hence, selfishness and violence are natural in any individual's pursuit of victory. Putting the code differently, passion leads to attachments. The fear of losing these attachments drives the need to protect them and the suffering, rage, guilt, and hatred that follow their loss. Attachments therefore lead to the search for the immediate strength and catharsis through unmitigated violence that the dark side provides. As Vader's statement implies, giving yourself to the dark side is the tipping point. Specifically, while the Jedi surrender to the Force to join their consciousness with the Living Force, the Sith physically consume and are physically consumed by the dark side to embody this negative aspect of the Living Force. Hence the Sith are at once the parasites, the hosts, and the vessels of the dark side. Remember, the dark side is a feedback loop of rage and hatred. It is the cosmic dragon confronted by the western ego, the abyss that devours your rage and hatred, making you stronger as it becomes stronger and in turn feeds your rage and hatred. This is why the dark side feels cold and oppressive for the Jedi. They seek and find serenity and harmony, spiritual healing within the force, but the dark side is the opposite of all of these. Considered from the Indian perspective, since the dark side eliminates the duality between your physical body and the transcendental absolute, the force, physically, not spiritually, it is anti-nature. It is literally adharma, which results in a perverted form of enlightenment. Similarly, places strong in the dark side are thus permanent wounds or scars on reality, windows into the dreamless deep, paths to the cosmic force that ironically allow Jedi to enter this realm and perceive or even overcome the temptations of the dark side. The cave on Dagobah mentioned in the introduction is one of these. So too is the planet Cetos in the recent Ahsoka series. In effect, when you give yourself to the dark side, its power leads to victory over your limitations and the void because instead of defeating the eternal serpent, the force, or nature in its chaotic aspect, you become it. Accordingly, the Sith achieve in life what the Jedi seek beyond life, joining with the Force through the elimination of all attachments. Reflecting the dual nature of the Force, the Sith obtain this through the dominance of their ego via their selfishness. In contrast, the main goal of the Jedi is the total elimination of their ego via selflessness. Ironically, the chains you break on the path of the dark side include the attachments that led you to the dark side in the first place. Becoming the serpent causes you to transcend all of your personal attachments and guilt because all that matters is the ultimate victory of your own ego. Mercy, compassion, and loyalty all become meaningless because they are only impediments to power once your chains are broken. This brings us back to the origins of this power, to the midichlorians and their relation to the term Darth. 
First, instead of working in symbiosis with their midichlorians and harmonizing with the Force like the Jedi, true Sith completely dominate their midichlorians, devouring the dark side and wielding it like a weapon. This immediately results in their yellow eyes, which reflect the total domination of the will over the body, of one's ego over one's midichlorians, ironically and gradually destroying a true Sith's physical body. Eventually, this feedback loop allows the dark side, the Ouroboros, to devour its users. While the Sith inevitably become stronger in the Force over time, as their ability to command and wield the dark side grows, their bodies become increasingly incapable of channeling that energy. Hence, under the rule of two, the apprentice will inevitably defeat the master. Notably, the dark side can only destroy. While the Sith can use it to literally feed on the fear of others, they cannot heal their own body with it, only corrupt and erode it. With enough power and rage, however, a dark side wielder can survive almost anything outlasting injuries that most people would succumb to by dominating and commanding their midichlorians to keep them alive at all costs. In the Old Republic, Darth was a name representing the final transformation into a Sith, not a title. That is, a true Sith, a Darth, had achieved permanent physical unity with the Transcendental or Absolute, with the Dragon of Chaos. Powerful Sith in the Old Republic were thus orders of magnitude stronger than even the most forceful Jedi, yet their endless pursuit of power inevitably resulted in the death of the strongest Sith at the hands of groups of weaker Sith. That is, until Darth Bane established the Rule of Two, which merits a future episode all on its own. In any case, given the term's origins, other than Sidious, every Darth we encounter from the prequels to the original trilogy before Darth Vader is not a true Sith. Although his legends and canon origins differ somewhat, in both cases Palpatine made Maul the satanic hammer he needed during the initial stages of his overthrow of the Republic. In The Phantom Menace, no Jedi are fully cognizant of what Sith actually are, and no living Jedi, even Yoda, have actually fought or even engaged with a living Sith. In Episode 1, Darth Maul thus embodies the galaxy's vague memories of the Sith as cosmic boogeymen, demons incarnate. Nevertheless, Maul's connection to the dark side was imposed upon him by both his Dathomirian origins and Sidious himself. His yellow eyes indicate his full control over his midichlorians, but his lack of anything beyond limited force abilities and his defeat at the hands of the inexperienced Padawan Obi-Wan demonstrate that Palpatine designating him as Darth Maul was a reward for loyalty, not a reflection of ability. In James Luceno's now non-canon Darth Plagueis novel, Palpatine even states outright that he allowed Maul to believe he was more skilled than he actually was, deeming him more a pet or a hammer than an actual apprentice. Sadly, this entails that Maul is fully aware that he is utterly doomed in his duel with Palpatine on Mandalore, as well as in his attempted revenge against Obi-Wan on Tatooine. In this respect, Maul has become a beloved figure in fandom because time and again he exhibits cosmic valor, defined in the introduction as the heroic stand of the individual ego against the inevitability of his or her inevitable, transcendental obliteration. Darth Tyrannus, on the other hand, is merely a Dark Jedi, not a true Sith. While Dark Jedi can be incredibly powerful, they only wield the Dark Side, they do not embody it. This allows Dooku to use Force Lightning without channeling it and destroying his body in the process. 
Thus Yoda is able to reflect Dooku's lightning, but is ultimately defeated by Palpatine's. In short, Dark Jedi have fallen to the dark side, but they are not Sith, because they either resist or are simply not ready to give themselves fully to the dark side, only exhibiting yellow eyes in extreme circumstances. They are thus unable to fully embody the corrosive but incredibly powerful dark side of the living force, merely wielding it for their own ends. Following Episode 2, Anakin is another Dark Jedi. He fell to the dark side when his mother died, but he did not become a full Sith until well after Episode 3, as brilliantly detailed in James Luceno's, also now non-canon, Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. Indeed, when Palpatine names Anakin Darth Vader, rather than calling him a Sith, he says, A powerful Sith you will become. Killing the younglings and other Jedi in the temple therefore constitutes an important step on Anakin's path towards becoming a true Sith, not the result of it. Arguably, it's even unclear if Anakin actually wants to kill Obi-Wan on Mustafar. We watch yellow-eyed Anakin gleefully annihilate all of the Separatist leadership, but he remains merely a dark Jedi throughout his duel with Obi. Hence Anakin loses to Obi-Wan because Obi is the perfect Jedi on Mustafar, brilliantly performing lightsaber form 3, Sarisu, exhibiting perfect defense while allowing Anakin to exhaust himself. Not yet a true Sith, Anakin is simply wielding his saber with dark intent, not channeling the dark side, let alone dominating all of his midichlorians. As we learned in the Mortis arc of the Clone Wars, Anakin's forcefulness is unparalleled, even by actual avatars of the Force. Nevertheless, on Mustafar, as the perfect Jedi, Obi-Wan not only surrenders to the Force fully, thereby anticipating all of Anakin's strikes, but even briefly overcomes his attachment to Anakin, dismembering, emasculating, and utterly defeating him. In embodying the Jedi, however, Obi is also unable to kill Anakin, because the Jedi Code entails he must preserve life, even one as pathetic as what remains of his Padawan, friend, and brother. From a mythological perspective, then, we can consider both the Jedi and the Sith respective embodiments of Eastern and Western heroism. The Jedi seem to be the protagonists, indeed George Lucas defined them as such. However, myths are poems. They are art whose meaning is defined and redefined by their observers and interpreters over time. In the fall of the Jedi, we thus observe the dangers of rigid dogma and institutionalization, when ethnic ideas and the sociological function of myth supersede the primary mystical function of elementary, selfless spirituality. Conversely, in the rise of the Sith, we observe that the brutal pursuit of selfish power, the dominance of the ego without virtue, no matter how ethical its origins, inevitably destroys everything until all that remains is that power and its endless pursuit. And, at the end of this perversion of myth's mystical function, lies only a decrepit puppet of the dark side and the burnt remains of emergence in the Force, silently staring into the abyss. This concludes Chapter 1 of The Eldritch Grimoire. Good journey, my friends.